Andrew McGregor. And with each installation in this podcast, we're going to explore the world of spirituality, what it means to be alive, and how is it that we can bring our spiritual selves, tarot, meditation, religious or spiritual practices into our daily lives. Please check out all of our episodes at thehermitslamp.com slash podcasts. Or you can search The Hermit's Lamp in podcasts on iTunes, catch it on Stitcher Radio or other services along those lines on your smartphones or wherever you like. So if you're listening to this podcast, I bet that you want to be the best tarot reader that you can possibly be. And lucky for you, I run some of the most amazing online tarot classes going. Serious world-class teachers whose names you will recognize from all the books and things that they have written and published, who are truly experts in the field uh, or in the topic that we are focused on for the classes. So whether you're looking for foundations to learn the Tarot de Marseille, to learn psychology, or whether you're looking to uh, build a spiritual or tarot-related business, I've got some astounding classes. Head on over to thehermitslamp.com, click on the Events tab, and check them all out. Your reading skill will improve just from looking at them. Welcome to the Hermit's Lamp Podcast. I'm here today with Robert Place, a very talented artist, deck creator, and historian, whose work I first came to know from the Alchemical Tarot. Uh, So, you know, I'm super excited to have Robert here. And for those who might not know who you are, um, who are you? What are you up to? What's going on? Well, I'm an artist that creates tarot decks, but I'm also a scholar. I know, I mean, I know a tremendous amount about the history and art of the tarot, and I teach uh, classes on that. Uh, I I teach at the uh, Metropolitan Museum about their collection of tarot decks. I teach at the New York Open Center regularly. I teach at workshops all around the world. I teach... uh, the symbolism, the history, and the and divination with the cards. Um, but I'm, I'm like you said, I'm most well known for creating the alchemical tarot. But I've created many decks and books. And I, my book, uh, the tarot history, symbolism, and divination, um, was is really well known. It was uh, reviewed by the uh, American Library Association in uh, their magazine book list, and they gave it a starred review and said it may be the best book ever written on the tarot. So uh, it's in you can probably find it in libraries all over the United States. I don't know how it is in Canada. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's hard to say here. You know, it's that we have we have a pretty at least in Toronto we have pretty serious libraries network mm-hmm. of libraries and and you can get stuff that's not uh, you know not in your local library. They'll just send it around to you. Um, you know, we have I mean, you can sometimes get into the university libraries where they also have you know a tremendous amount of resources as well. So yeah. Um, so I, I recently, uh, got to hang out with you. We were at, we were at Reader Studio in New York, which was really fun. And one right. of the things that really, uh, inspired me to, to just be like, yeah, we should definitely have this conversation was we started talking about making art and trying to like find the, find time for our creative process and stuff, you know? And I'm wondering how, how you're doing with that. How is your creative process going these days? Well, basically that's what I do to make a living. Mm-hmm. See, a, lo- a long time ago, uh, I was uh, I had a job 
you know, I, got, I graduated from college and I, and I <clears throat> was a, uh, uh, I, I was working for the, the county welfare board in New Jersey. And it was just basically, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, checking on people in nursing homes and things like that. And I really wanted to get out of it. And I wanted to make a living as an artist. And then I had studied, uh, you know, the school I went to, um, was, um, a teaching college. So the thing is I became an art teacher and that really wasn't very satisfying either. And I kept saying, well, how can I get out of this? Mm. I just want to spend, spend my time making things, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, well, these inspirations and you want to carry them out. And you're, in the meantime, you're teaching kindergartners, you know, how to pick up a crayon. So, um, in the summers I used to, I used to have to go out and actually make a living with my artwork because I didn't ha- I didn't get enough money that it would carry me through the summer when we were off from school and I started going to uh, outdoor art shows and trying to sell my paintings and then I noticed that the uh the people who were making crafts like there were sections for crafts and they were making a lot more money mm-hmm. so I taught myself to make jewelry and then I started doing craft shows and I quit teaching and I just did it full time and that's the thing you just have to jump into it it's really scary cuz you- you're getting this paycheck and you're really relying on it and then all of a sudden you say oh, I don't need that Mm-hmm. go make money, you know, and then you don't know, and you, you say, well, suppose I don't get enough money to pay my rent. Suppose I don't get enough money uh, to eat, you know. Well, you just have to say, oh, all right, well, you don't eat, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, money, so go make it, right? And then you just go out and do it, and then next thing you know, I was making more money than I was teaching, so it was like silly that I was even worried about it. And, and this was predominantly place. making jewelry, right? Yeah, so I was making jewelry, and then... Uh, I, I did that for many years, and I, I had, I don't know, I've told this story over and over. I had this dream where the tarot came to me, and um, it it was a really startling dream. It was I, like I was walking through a room, and a telephone rang, and I realized it was a message coming from outside my normal consciousness, and it just woke me into this lucidity that, you know, it was really intense. Like, you can't even, I can't forget the dream because it was so intense. Mm-hmm. And uh, and on and and then I pick up the phone and a, an operator said she had the person person call for uh, Robert Place from and it was coming from England and I accepted it and then she put a dream secretary on from a dream law firm and <laughs> she told me I had an inheritance coming I had a lot of power and uh, I'd know it when I see it it's, it's called the key so then that set up these like amazing synchronistic events where uh, within a few days a friend of mine came over with the Wade Smith cards and uh, uh, I, I immediately my head turned you know the, the, in the dream the operator had told me I mean the secretary had told me that uh, I'd know it when I see it and I and my head turned and just focused you know my eyes focused not even with me in control of them and they just focused on this deck and I knew it I said oh that's the inheritance alright so we're looking at the Wade Smith cards I said we'll have to get one of these then within another day or so, my friend Ed came over and he just gave me a Marseille deck. He said, you know, he was an astrologer. He was very intuitive. And he said, I have this deck. I don't even use it. And I have this feeling that you need it. And he just gave it to me. And, Lovely. Yeah. So then, so then I bought the Waysmith and I started working with it. And, and that's how I got involved in Tarot. And being an artist, and I always, I mean, it was, as a jeweler, I was really more of a sculptor. I wanted to make sculpted figures in silver and so I wasn't always in fashion. I, I was just doing my own thing, more like George Jensen jewelry, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I really wanted to illustrate. I had always 
been an illustrator originally. So I started, after a while, I had inspiration. I started working on a, a tarot deck, the Alchemical Tarot. That's a whole other story about the inspiration. But uh, it was like I had, I had to break away, away from making my jewelry. So here I was like having, you know, you think, oh, you're, doing, you're being creative, you're making jewelry. But a lot of making jewelry is just once you have it designed, you get it cast, and then you're just finishing castings. Mm-hmm. You know, you're sitting, standing on a buffing wheel all day. With like, you know, you, you have these, these wheels spinning, and if you, let, if you lose your concentration, let go, the thing goes out of your hands, it goes flying, and, you know, and you're using this uh, dirty clay, you know, it's called Tripoli, it's like clay with some compounds in it, and and that sort of cleans up the silver, and it's like, it gets you filthy, you know. So glamorous, so, right? <laughs> and, you're, you know, at the end of the day, your heads are black, you look like a mechanic, you know. Yeah. So, uh, and the hair I wanted to draw, so I have to, like, wash my hands and take time. So my jewelry business started suffering, and uh, I, I just... You know, I, I need I needed to I needed to just work on the tarot full time. So what happened? The thing is, I was again synchronistic events just saved me. I I was in a uh, a health food store in New York City, and I saw this magazine that I didn't know about called Gnosis, and I and I had been like I, I had been studying all these uh, books on alchemy and Gnosticism, and you know the, the tarot led me into this whole uh, study of esoteric subjects. Trying to find out more about the tarot because usually when I read books on the tarot, they didn't make much sense to me. So I'm trying to figure out what was really going on with it. Mm. You know, as an art historian, like I always was in- interested in art history. And the thing is that I realized that most of the books, what they said, didn't make sense. The, the, the tarot decks could not have come from ancient Egypt. Right. Uh, that was just <clears throat> nonsense. So, uh, I started saying, well, where did it come from? Where the, you know, there is a philosophy in here. There's philosophy, you know, there's a, uh, hermetic philosophy, which did come from Egypt, but it's probably, but it came through the Renaissance because the art, artwork obviously was European. And, um, so as, as I studied this more and more, I had more and more books around and that's how I, I, I got the inspiration to do the alchemical tarot. And then I, and I found this magazine called Gnosis. So I immediately, subscribe to the magazine. I said, well, gee, I just found out about Gnostics and, and I, now I found out they have their own magazine. You know, it's sort of silly. How come I didn't know this? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got, I, I got the magazine and then, in, you know, I get this voice in the back of my head, which I have since identified as Hermes. And he, and when I'm reading the magazine and this voice says to me, you know, if they're going to do an issue on the tarot. You should send them some of the pictures you're doing. Cause you know, here I was like just trying to steal time for my jewelry and you know, only had a couple of pictures done. Mm-hmm. So I sent him one of the pictures with a little write-up about it. And then uh, the editor called me up from San Francisco a week later. And he said, you know, and, I said, and in the letter I said, here, I'm sending you this for this your upcoming issue on the Torah. Like I was so confident you know, with myself. He goes, so he calls me up and goes, how come you think we're doing an issue on Torah? We're not doing an issue on the Torah. Uh, so, <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know. I just thought you might be. But uh, so, he, so he said, but yeah, we're doing this issue. It's issue number 13. It's on the goddess. And this, and this picture you sent is perfect for this uh, illustration for this article on Sophia. Mm-hmm. And I want to put it in, but I want you to write a one-page article about your tarot deck. Nice. So that was the first thing I had published. You know, so, I, so here I was. I mean, I had always been an artist. You know, I had lots of friends that were writers. And then I never really thought of myself as a writer. And uh, suddenly I was writing an article for this magazine. And then... Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who was a, a, a New Age author, was reading the magazine, 
and she saw the article. She was writing a book on the tarot, and then she asked me to put some of my pictures in her book on the tarot and to write a little, some you know, chapter for her book. Mm-hmm. So then I got, so that got published, and then then she got then she got in touch with me and said, "Well, how's it going with your deck?" And I said, "Well, you know, I'm a, I have maybe ten ten of the cards designed, and it's like hard because I have to steal time." And she says, "Well, what you're supposed to do is get a contract from a publisher." And they'll give you an advance, and then you'll have that'll free up your time because you have the money to actually spend the time doing the tarot deck, right? Mm-hmm. So, so she said, "I'd be willing to work with you on it. You know, I could work with you on the book that would go with it." So uh, we teamed up, and then we next thing I know, we had a contract from Harper Collins from their London office, and I actually got a, did get a phone call from London, just like in my dream, yeah, telling me that they were going to publish my deck. So it isn't like, you know, it's hard for me to relate because most people are struggling. You know, it's like my friends who were like uh, authors are like, I was telling them, oh, yeah, I got this contract. I'm writing a book for HarperCollins and I'm designing this deck. And they were like floored because they said, well, you're an artist. You don't even write. And I, you know, here I've been writing my whole life. and I can't get published. And suddenly you're getting published by the biggest publisher in the world. Like, what is this? Well, it's the it's the it's the magic of of synchronicity it's the magic of you know whatever that hermes voice is right it's the magic of all of those things so yeah collating yeah, for sure at yeah. a specific time right you know well well see the thing was the alchemical tarot wanted to be published i mean mm-hmm. it was more like the tarot came to me i didn't ask for the tarot came to me in the dream it told me it was coming to me uh yeah and then, and then I understood because I had always paid attention to my dreams. So I understood what the dream was telling me is that the tarot was a way of continuing this dream analysis, this dream divination, and while you're awake, and you basically use the tarot to give yourself a waking dream. Yeah. Yeah. And were you doing, um, you know, because you were studying alchemy and stuff like that? Were you doing lab work as well, or was this more of a philosophical? It's it's more like philosophical alchemy, but mm-hmm. also I consider the way I would make art alchemy. alchemy. I mean, the thing is, alchemists originally made jewelry and things, mm. which is what it was. It was jewelry. I mean, they didn't, you know, because you always know, you always hear about the alchemists that they're sort of like chemists and they and they made uh, and they're always trying to make the philosophers dumb. But that was the great work. But in the meantime, they were making soap and perfume and jewelry and learning. Sure. I mean, it started with metallurgy, which is what yeah. I was working. So the thing is, I was working with fire and, you know, metals and, and, uh, and, and you know, the four elements, basically. I mean, you have, you have metal and then you had fire, you have water, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, a, actually, it's a very magical process. Play, you know? when, <laughs> when I went to art school, uh, I, predominantly I studied sculpture, um, yeah. but I did, a, I did a one-year course in jewelry making, which, you know, once I graduated, I didn't have access to the setup so that kind of came came to an end but it is really a magical magical thing to you know to cast something to melt the metal to like to do all these things right to bend it to shape it to well, yeah yeah and also the thing is when you're soldering for instance like you i don't know if you remember this but when you're soldering i would turn the lights out and i'd look at the color of the metal mm-hmm. and see the thing is because you have to know when the solder is going to flow and the way you do it is by color which is the exact same thing the alchemists say yeah like you know, and and when it got to be that cherry red color, you know that the solder is going to flow, and that was, and that's, and even in the great work, that's the red color is the, is when you create the philosopher's stone. It's like you know when it's complete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did blacksmithing as well, and there, especially, 
you know, it's all about the color of the metal, right? You want, yeah, exactly. you want to temper it, you want a sharp edge, you want to, you want it soft enough that it's not going to splinter when you're hammering it. You want, you know, all of those things, you know, it's that, that continuous process and that dance of trying to find that right range in which to be working. Well, yeah, I, I did, I did some work. I made, on, I made knives too sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. and I, like I would get an old file, which, is, you know, files are really good steel and yeah. I would, and I I take the temper out of the file, then I'd use another file to file off the teeth. <laughs> so it's like you, here you have this file and you're filing off the teeth with another file, you know? Yeah. Because because you change the metal because you 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 made the the molecules spread out and soften up and and then and then I I saw it out and into the shape and I carve basically carve it into a knife shape and then retemper it and then all of a sudden you have a knife that could you know you could sharpen it so sharp you could just slice through paper or whatever you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what's wonderful. That's awesome. Um, so, so you got? Were you predominantly looking at the Rider Waite Smith, or did you dig into the Marseille yeah, well, right at the beginning? I, I well, I was using, like I said, I had I bought the the, the Smith, the, you know, Waite Smith deck, and I uh, and I had the the Tarot of Marseille, and between the two of them, I just played back and forth. Mm-hmm. Mostly used the Waite Smith though, because it was a lot easier with all the pictures on the pips, you know. Sure. A lot of people use the Marseille just. Concentrate on the trump cards. I mean, you see a lot of people who read with them just use the trump cards. Mm-hmm. But, but it's funny because now that I've studied this more, divination with cards really in in the Renaissance has started with just using regular four suit decks, which are basically what the minor suits are. Mm-hmm. So that was actually more people were using those for divination than actually trump cards. You know. Yeah. Well, it goes back to what you're saying about this um, this notion of of the history of reading cards, right? I mean. You know, basically we had playing cards came from the Middle East, maybe from Persia or wherever. And then we have this Renaissance, you know, medieval or Renaissance European edition of all the the trump cards. But yeah, certainly so many people just read with those or were just reading with those numbered cards to start with, right? Yeah, well, but if you look at the early decks, what happened is cards were invented in China because for a very simple reason, they invented paper. Hmm. So once you make paper, you can make the stuff you make out of paper. And and then once paper came through uh, Asia, into, like you're saying, there were Persian cards, there were Egyptian cards. The Egyptian card was called the Mumluk deck, which is, you know, it's not an ancient Egyptian deck. It's an Islamic Egyptian deck. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was the one that was introduced in Spain and Sicily. And the, and the four suits are basically similar to the minor suits in the Torah. They're, they're uh, cups and coins and, and scimitars and polo sticks. And they just changed the polo sticks into batons or stabs or whatever in Europe and so so the, so the thing is um, with these decks in the early decks they if, if they're used for divination they tend to have the divinatory meanings written on the cards mm. so like and that you know I've seen some of these mumla cards uh, you know they ha- they, they're in a museum in Istanbul uh, you know I've seen pictures of them and uh they have a lot of, like, for one thing, they don't actually, on, on the royal cards, you know, there's 10 pip cards, an ace to 10, which are the number cards. And then there's the royal cards. And there's three royal cards, all male. It's, it's like uh, the vice here is lieutenant and his, and his second lieutenant. So the, now the thing is, on the, on the royal cards, we, you know, normally we would think they should have pictures of, the, of these people. But they don't because they had a prohibition about, uh, the, they're strict about their prohibition about not drawing people. Mm-hmm. Unlike the Persians who actually had Persian miniatures and drew people. Um, 
So the thing is, they have calligraphy on them with, as you know, the name of the of the. Uh, I think it's it's Moloch is the uh, the the, the uh, what we would call the king, and it's it's in calligraphy. But then there's more calligraphy on the cards, and then it said there's calligraphy on some of the uh, the pip cards, right, mm. on the ten three or something. So recently I saw somebody had translated them, you know, because obviously people can read Arabic, so it's not, you know, it's mysterious to me, but not to everybody. And there's all these little poems and sayings on them that look like they're for divination. So here it was for a card game, but it was probably also used for divination originally. I mean, we don't have any evidence of it other than that there's these things written on it that obviously could be used for divination. Mm -hmm. And then you see that in European cards, they would actually have meanings on the cards or they would have what they were what are called uh, for, uh, fortune telling books, and uh, in these books, you like they would they had these books even before they had cards. You know, they would could use dice or they could use anything. Like there's the man's fortune telling books, where a series of them that came out in the late 1400s, and the original ones. Like there's one that has a wheel and it has all different animals around the wheel, and you spin the wheel and and whatever animal comes up that takes you to a page in the in the book and it gives you divinatory meaning, right? Mm-hmm. Then what happened by around 1500, they start using cards instead, but they used the German deck, right? No, but we see, well, we see the same thing. Uh, there's a Lasorte from uh, uh, 1540, it was published in Venice, and it's this whole book on divination, but it uses cards, but they're, they're the regular Italian cards, they're just a suit of coins, which is, you know, the regular Italian decks are just like the minor suits in the tarot. Mm-hmm. So you can't say it's exactly a tarot thing because they're not using trumps. Yeah. Cartomancy. We can go with cartomancy. Well, that yeah, but see, my friend uh, uh, Giordano Berte from Italy will give me a big argument if I call that cartomancy. He says that's not truly cartomancy. Oh, I see. I see. <laughs> Is it so? So uh, so certain it's, things. He are says in... it's not cartomancy until you until later in the like when we get to, to the late you know like into the late 1600s, 1700s when they start saying you know having books where the cards themselves have meaning without meanings written on them. And you're not just ways to find a meaning in a book. That's cardamancy. I see. I see. Yeah. So they're more like they're more like, uh, they're more, they're more, they're more standing for the dice than they were inherently containing the meaning of themselves. Yeah, because if and I say if you look at a lot of early decks, there's even uh, uh, there's one Botero that was uh, created in Spain. That's a tarot deck that we know of from the 1400s and it has meanings written on, you know, we see reproductions of the pip cards. We don't have any reproductions of his trump cards, unfortunately, but there's a mm-hmm. book where it has reproductions like woodcuts of the pip cards and you can see there's meanings written on them. Yeah. And they were just used for love divination, you know, and, and so the different suits had to do with what kind of woman you're going to be attracted to. And... Right. Well, you know, some things never change, right? I mean, <laughs> tarot readers today still, you know, biggest question, it's hard to say whether it's love or money, right? Yeah. Well, that well, basically that's it. You know, yeah. like, you know, if you're a tarot reader, everybody wants to know about love and money. It's a rare they want to know about something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is fair, right? We all have our, we all have our needs and our hopes and our fears, right? So, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, you you uh, you and Rachel Pollock have been doing stuff together. Yeah. Well, we live near each other for one thing. And when I, I mean, Rachel Pollock came and introduced herself to me when I first started in the alchemical tarot, when I would have the article in Gnosis. Mm-hmm. And I was doing. Uh, I used to do craft shows to sell my jewelry, and I was in a craft show in uh, Poughkeepsie at the Civic Center, and she came up and introduced herself. Yeah. 
Yeah, and 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 then I so I asked, so I invited her over the house and I showed her all the work I was doing on the alchemical tarot and then I asked her to write an introduction to the book. So the very first book, the introduction is by Rachel Pollock. So we've been working together since then, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And your your current deck is the the one that you're working on is the am I saying it right? The Raziel. Yeah, Raziel. Yeah. Yeah. How how is that process? Well, what's ha- well so far. I've designed all of the trump cards, and we have an we have two extra trump cards. We have the the uh, tree of knowledge and tree of life. So so there's uh, 24 of them. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, consider the fool of trump. So the thing is, we decided that what we're going to do is we're going to do, publish a special set of just the trumps with the book by Rachel for now because it's going to take so much longer to do the whole deck, and and we want to you know have something we can sell right away. Mm-hmm. So this will be a special edition, and, and it'll be slightly larger size cards, about six inches high, and the book will be the same size, and it'll come in a box set. Nice. So right now, so Rachel wrote the book, except for the uh, she's working on the final chapter right now. But I'm laying out what she wrote, and we're just laying out the book right now because the cards are all designed. And once that happens, then you know, we'll, um, I'll send it off to my printer and get an estimate, and then maybe we'll do, do an Indiegogo campaign and start doing fundraising for it. In the meantime, mm-hmm. I'm doing fundraising right now for my Marziano Tarot. Right. Yep. Which is which is one of the oldest decks, right? Well, it's supposed. Well, here's see, it's tricky because it's the oldest known deck. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean it's the oldest deck because most decks maybe we don't know about, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Also, now see that, and then some people, you know, say like, they, it almost sounds like hype. You know, it almost sounds like you know the greatest show on earth, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. The greatest deck on earth. Da, 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 da. Yeah, right. Okay, but the thing, and, and then people say, "Wasn't well, the you know, isn't the Visconti Sforza deck the oldest deck?" No, you know, but it's really, it's really complicated. See, the thing is, the Visconti Sforza deck is the oldest existing deck that has maybe a complete set of trumps. But there mm-hmm. are other, there's two other decks that were created for the Duke of Milan where that has existing existing cards. And they're older than the Visconti Sorza, yeah. but they don't. The, the whole deck isn't there. Mm-hmm. See, they're fragmented. So, the, so like the one that's in Yale University, the Visconti deck is uh, has eleven trumps, and we know that, and we can see that some are missing because you can see, like the, for the, for instance, that it has the three Christian virtues and one of the cardinal virtues, so it would suggest that it should have all seven virtues. Mm-hmm. But of course, they're you know the card, they weren't numbered or labeled or anything, so we don't know. Like, say, whereas in the Visconti Sforza deck. Uh, it has all of the trumps except for the devil in the tower, but there's no evidence they ever had a devil in the tower in any of those decks. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it was possibly the complete series, right? Okay. But those are existing cards, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now this is this these are this is the deck that does not exist that I'm talking about. It's just we know it from from it's it, Marziano, who was the guy who came up with it, who conceived of the deck, and then had an artist design it for the Duke of Milan for uh, Filippo Maria Visconti, who was the Duke of Milan. He 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 wrote this whole thing about it, and then we and then we have a letter uh, from like like the uh, the Queen of Lorraine sent her agent to Italy to look for decks, and then he found this deck, and he was writing to her about it, and he sent her Marziano's description. Mm-hmm. Which so we have this description from the late 1400s, but Marziano wrote the description possibly as early as 1425, which would make it the earliest known tarot deck. If you define a tarot deck as any deck having trumps added to it, like a standard mm-hmm. deck with trumps added to it. Yeah. Okay. 
Now, the thing is, the Trumps, have they're not at all the Trumps we're used to. They're 16 gods. Right. But this is the oldest you know, reference to a deck with Trumps at it. Mm-hmm. Also, the the minor suits aren't the ones you're used to. They're they're the suits are birds, right? They're, they're eagles, phoenixes, turtle doves, and doves. And do they yeah. correlate to to the other symbols, or are they just things unto well, in themselves? In a way, because he because he, he went, see Marziano went, went into a lot of description about the symbolism of the deck. He seemed to be he was really a, a, you know like really fascinated with creating this philosophical structure of the deck. Mm-hmm. With, you know, which is what you think of as Tarot, right? You, like, here it is, here's our oldest reference. And this guy, he was an astrologer. He was the Duke's astrologer besides his tutor and his scribe and, you know, mm-hmm. very educated man. So and so he's creating this deck. And then he asks, and one of the things he says uh, in his in his write-up about it, he's, he's addressing the, uh, the Duke. And he says, some people might ask, is it fitting for someone as exalted as the Duke to be playing a game, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he says, well, it is if, if that game... Is of, of philosophical importance, you know, and, and ser- has serious philosophical content, and this one does, you know. Mm-hmm. So you can see right from the beginning, that's what we think of Terrell, right? You know, that has important philosophical content. That's what he's saying. Yeah. You no, know, why he's creating it. But you know how, like, so many people are saying, well, who created the first tarot deck? And they're thinking, like, well, the Tarot Marseille must have been what it looked like in, you know, the French deck. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And here it's like it's nothing like that. <laughs> I mean, I, I think of the, the Tarot de Marseille as kind of the, the foundation of modern tarot. You know, yeah, I mean, well, like, you know, like the oldest one in that that's called that is from 1650, yeah, which is, and we're going back to 1425 here, you know, for sure, yeah, because there's a lot of time before that where there's other things going on and lots of lots of variations and so on. But you know, I mean, it, yeah, you would know way more than me because I'm I'm not super deep on the history. But you know, when we go back to like the the Conver or the you know even the Noble or some of those, you know, at that point we've got the recognizable characters, right? We've got the recognizable yeah, yeah. structure and order and, and all that stuff. So, yeah. And we can see, and, you see, and we can see most of those characters are their, uh, you know, the antecedents of them in Visconti Sforza deck. Mm-hmm. Said, so there's, although, you know, the charioteer's a woman in that deck and, and, and what we call the hermits really a figure of time with an hourglass and, you know, but they seem to be related, right? Mm-hmm. And we can see that those characters developed in Italy, but not necessarily in that order that we think of. Yeah. But that's only by the end of the 1400s. But as we go through the 1400s, that whole thing's evolving. And here's our earliest reference, and here it's like 16 gods. And you say, well, those sound like totally different. But then when you look at them, you say, wait a minute, a lot of these guys are actually in the tarot we're familiar with. You know, because, sure. you know If you look at some of the early cards, Hercules is in there on the strength card. And then and then even the woman with the line is a reference to Hercules. And then you well, see you Cupid's on right. the lovers, and you know, sure, on and on. Jupiter and Juno in some decks, and yeah, right. you know, other things like that as well. As you, yeah, as you flip through the Flemish deck, and you know, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's where not not that there is a, a direct lineage back at all, because I think, as you say, that's just not true, right? But I, you know, but I mean, the what we see is there is a uh, a philosophical or uh, sort of hermetic slash mystic thread that is thoughts that people are working and evolving on, right? And, you know, early on, it's maybe easier to conceive of it as gods. Later on, it becomes couched in more Catholic or other terms, you know, but it's 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 pointing towards these sort of same mystic or philosophical ruminations about the world and life, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a philosophical discussion. The Trumps are definitely a philosophical discussion. Mm-hmm. about what's important that's why they're even called trumps 
Because the, yeah. the word triumph comes from triumphy. Mm-hmm. And, and triumphy is a parade. It's a triumph. And in yeah. the parade, each character trumps the one that comes before. And artists would use this. I mean, they had actual parades like this where artists would design the parades. They're always different. Uh, but the thing is, the, the artist uses this as a metaphor in artwork and to, to create what they felt was a hierarchy of importance of ideas, you know, from like the, from a poor beggar up to like the most exalted divine presence mm-hmm. or yeah. from common misconceptions to enlightenment, you know. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's what's, I mean, that's part of why, why tarot endures so much, I think, right? I mean, you know, there's like it, it, putting aside whatever magical or mystical statements we might make about it. It, it is, it is this sort of, access point to to these ongoing philosophical inquiries into the nature of our life and the world and the order of things and all this kind of stuff and i think that that's what's so fruitful about it right it it allows us to start building and understanding relationships between ourself and ideas ourself and archetypes ourselves and, and the patterns of history right yeah well it's interesting though i've been thinking about this lately because when I when I go to the museum and we look at the cards, they have some of the oldest, like you know, it's in the print collection. So they have the oldest printed tarot de- deck possibly in the world there in the Metropolitan Museum. It's it's from Ferrara and it's a woodcut deck that was never cut out and used. And then we're going, you know, so we're going through and we're looking at other tarot decks like French tarot Marseille decks, and we're looking at playing cards and minchiatis and and. Uh, but when we get to the 1800s and all those decks, there's this, there's this, like all these oracle decks, you know, like how there's been a lot of interest lately in the Lenormand deck. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just one of many, many different types of decks that were created in the 1800s, from the late 1700s and the 1800s, that were just designed for divination, and they're based on divination with regular playing cards, and they're not tarot decks. Mm-hmm. And that was probably more important, more popular for divination right into the united states i mean you know i've been starting to reproduce some i have this one that i reproduced that was published in new york city in in uh the 1880s and yet nobody in the united states knew about the tarot then right i mean it wasn't until like you know uh 1960s when people really in the united states started getting involved in the tarot Mm mm-hmm like you know more uh you know popularly and then it really took off in the you know in in to the later part of of the 20th century so the thing is here we're going back and yet there's people doing divination you can see in this decks you know being created in the united states even in the 1920s 1930s 1940s that are all these oracle decks i mean my wife has a deck it was made for kids she bought it when she was a kid i mean it was it was close to like 20 cents or something you know Mm -hmm. and uh (laughs) And it's this whole, and it's, and it's a kid's version of one of these oracle decks, you know. And I researched it, and it's it's based on the gypsy witch decks, you know. Yeah. Well, I have I have a, a deck of playing cards from uh, 1904 that uh, that has divinatory meanings printed on them, on the top and the bottom, and depending mm-hmm. on which one you shuffle them, and if it, you read the top mean, like there's a little instruction thing, and the top meaning is. Oh, that sounds like a tailor deck. I guess I'm not sure. But it's uh, a tarot deck, or no, no, just just playing cards. Oh, it's playing cards. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, Taylor was into playing cards and into the tarot, so mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, you know, and this is certainly a. 
I don't I don't have it handy to look for, but uh, you know, this is certainly a, a mass produced deck that you know was yeah. was around and available, you know, and somebody gave it to me at one point and. You know, it's, it's so these things were out there, right? Like they were just happening. Yeah, they, yeah. Well, people have always been doing divination, and cards are a great way to do divination. So the thing is, but you know, it makes me wonder because, like, when I first started looking at these decks in the museum, nobody knew anything about them. There wasn't anything written on it. I couldn't. And now people have gotten interested, and in, in more Europeans who knew more about it started to talk about them. Mm-hmm. And now there's a lot of people in the United States who are interested in Tarot, getting inter- interested in Lunar Mom. Yeah, that I've been able to research it more, and I can actually fill out my discussion of them better so um but the thing is it got me thinking well you know how like in the later part of the 20th century tarot got really popular until we get to like the 1990s and it was like like every publisher was doing tarot decks you know there was like too many mm-hmm. people you know people weren't even you know the, like the blind publishers got turned off because the publish because printing costs went up and and they had been publishing all these tarot decks and it was almost like they felt like if it had really bad artwork, it must be really mystical or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so they printed all these decks that nobody wanted to buy, mm-hmm. and then they got really disappointed. And then it was like for about five years, you couldn't get anybody interested in publishing a tarot deck. Yeah. Which is after, you know, because my, my alchemical tarot came out in 1995, and then it wasn't until like 2000 when I could publish something again. Mm-hmm. And 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 then it was like you know Llewellyn and U.S. Games and people who specialized in it. Yeah. You know, so so the, so the thing is, I, I, you know, there were so many decks created, and then you know now now again, there's a, a lot of people creating decks again, and they're all different subjects. You know, you can get you can get tarot decks about voodoo and and you know space aliens and whatever whatever your whatever your jam is there's a tarot deck for that for sure yeah right you know so so the thing is what's so imagine if like we stop making these right and then you know they're just shoved away in collections and then like hundreds of years from now somebody looks at them Mm -hmm. and it's sort of be like my experience looking at all those oracle decks when i first looked at them didn't know what they were yeah no totally research it right i mean it doesn't you know the thing is we don't really know what's going to happen in the future Mm mm-hmm yeah, well, it's it's like you say. It's like we also don't know what might have been lost to history, right? You know, stuff yeah, that came out yeah. and you know, people didn't didn't really write about it, or you know, didn't you know didn't keep them, or they you know, yeah. they're only only people who you know maybe they were super common, and so people people didn't you know sustain them or, or tuck them away and keep them safe, right, or whatever, right? Yeah, well, well, here, you know, I always tell this joke to my class. Okay, so so the, a friend goes into the bar. I mean, a man goes in the bar and sees his friend, and his friend's leaving. You, you with me? Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, he, he goes out of the bar to see how he's doing, and his friend's on his hands in these under the street lamp looking through the grass. And he says, what are you looking for? He said, his friend says, I'm looking for my car keys. So he said, did you lose them there? And he goes, no, I lost them by the car, but there's no light there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> see, Definitely. that's history. <laughs> yeah. Because history is only what people wrote about, and so the things they didn't write about don't exist. And then, of course, there's artifacts too, but then that's the only the things that last. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and cards you know. that don't tend to last. So you know, I mean, a lot of cards are are, are have. I mean, they just disappear, you know, because they're paper. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, <clears throat> you know, I look at the state of some of my cards. I look at the state of my first deck which was the Mythic Tarot, which I got when it first came out. 
And, uh, you know, that deck is not in good shape. If it was not my first deck and I had a sentimental attachment to it, I would not keep it because it is, it has yeah. not stood up to the test of time. You well, know, if you're going to get rid of it, what you should do is throw it in, in a hollow wall somewhere so people can find it in the future. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know. My my grandmother got it for me, so I, I feel especially nostalgic about it. So I think it'll just sort of be around forever as a conversation piece. But, uh, but yeah, eventually that would be very amusing. I actually quite enjoy um, – I have a whole box of uh, random cards that I got from uh, Roxanne Flournoy who – uh, who her right. and her husband, uh, you know, did a lot and do a lot of uh, Marseille printing, and yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, and and so she sent me a box of random cards, and uh, so what I do is I I just keep them in my bag and I leave them places, you know, just a random <laughs> card here and there, tucked into the phone booth, tucked into the subway seat, you know, whatever, like just or I'll be somewhere I'll be like, oh, I should leave one here, and you know, stuff like that. So and I remember one time I got to. Uh, I had put put a card somewhere where I didn't think it would be noticed very quickly, but the people who came down the stairs almost immediately after me into the subway saw it, and they're like, oh, "It's a tarot card," and they started looking around, and they're like, "I wonder where it came from. I wonder who put it there. I wonder what it means." And then they had this little debate whether they should take it or leave it, right? And they decided that they should just take a picture and leave it there so that other people could see it and enjoy it as well. And I was just – I'm utterly delighted that that was the experience. And I hope that it is always the case that people are so excited to come across them, you know? Well, you know, Enrique Enriquez does that also. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. So what's um, – you're working on the Raziel. You've got your your other deck going, the Marziano. Many, yeah, the Marziano. How many how many uh, other inspirations are you like kicking around on? Like, you know, what what else are you fired up and thinking about on the horizon here? If you if you can share. Well, huh. okay one okay one of the things I've been kicking around is writing another book. On uh, you know because I, I I like. I wrote a book that, you know, I updated my book for the alchemical tarot, right? Yeah. And, and it somewhat explains my tarot, the sevenfold mystery, which is actually the deck I mostly use now. Uh-huh. And I have a little white book in there that goes into the symbolism of the cards and stuff. But the thing is, I was thinking of writing a full book for it, but then maybe I was thinking maybe I should just update the alchemy and the tarot book and make it include the sevenfold mystery. And there's more stuff I want to talk about. Also, I keep finding out more you know, more recent findings about history that I should update the history in the book anyway. Hmm. So yeah. if you read, you know, the trouble is you write a book on history and it's sort of, it's stuck in the time you wrote it. Sure. Yeah. And then you find out more stuff later and then, you know, it's, and then you go, oh, well, this has to be modified and revised. And, you know. mm-hmm. Yeah. I was hanging out with uh, this guy, Joseph Peterson, who is a um, predominantly like a, I guess you call him a magical grimoire historian. And uh, you know he uh, he was talking about his books that his book that came out, and you know like you like you say he he's looking under the grass for his car key somewhere else. So you find this uh, you know partial document of this manuscript here and this partial document of that manuscript there, and then you translate them and compare them and see what might be missing, and you know and start like looking around for who might have you know some other copy and. Uh, you know, he said it's always the way he, he puts out a book, and then somebody finds a new manuscript that has some piece that wasn't in it, right? And you're like, oh, now my now my book is incomplete again. Now history has another piece that uh, 
updates it or clear clears yeah. clarifies it or whatever. Well, you know, like for instance, with, with the, like playing cards were introduced into Europe in the 1300s, and we didn't have, you know, but there wasn't much evidence exactly when. And uh, for you know, if you look in Kaplan's books and you look in almost all, all the history books, they talk about how there were uh, prohibitions on gambling and I didn't mention card games until uh 1367 in Bern, Switzerland. That's the oldest you yeah. know one we can find. So we know that's evidence that the cards existed in Europe in 1367 and and this is from Bern, Switzerland and we we and and our model is that they were introduced to Spain and Italy. So uh, you know, it seems like it must be there before then. So this is so all my books say that, right? 1367. Mm-hmm. That's our first evidence. Now just recently on Facebook, somebody posted this picture that the the museum in Naples had this manuscript, and and they started posting what's in their collection, and they posted this picture of a king playing cards from like an Arthurian romance, right? And mm-hmm. and the thing is, the book was possibly created as early as 1352. Okay, which just you know put the you know we have a picture of somebody playing cards. And he's actually using, you know, like the regular Italian suits. And you can see that, you know, some of the cards are, they're, you know, not very clear. But you can see there's obviously somebody holding a two of coins. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> at the table. And, and and this is, you know, we just set it back, you know, in 10 years, you know, or more. Right? So. Yeah. And, and, yeah, I mean, and it's, is that, is that like the the moment it happens? Probably not. Probably there's no, some time I before that. Picture people playing cards if they weren't already playing cards before that. Yeah, you know, right? because yeah. it's not necessarily such a like if it was something that was the status of wealth or whatever, and be like, look, I have a I have a rare tiger that nobody's ever seen before. You could be like, well, the king got the first one, and now we're showing it. But yeah, but like you're saying, if it's sort of out there, it's definitely got some precedence in the community and and so on. Yeah, and yeah, and so then, and here's this manuscript is in this museum, and nobody saw it. And then finally, the museum decided to post it online, and we just and then and they go, oh, yeah, and this is probably the oldest picture of somebody playing cards in Europe. Yeah, and they just happened to mention it, like you know, so all these books are, are you know don't have this information for like you know the last fifty years, you know. Mm-hmm. Does it does it inspire you or frustrate you that it's this way? No, it's really cool to find these things. Yeah, nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I really, I really. I think I think that curiosity, you know, is so important, right? You know, yeah. I mean, it's certainly in what you're doing, but really, I, I think that it's something it's something that I see as a challenge in the in the tarot community in general. You know, we have these opportunities to meet things with curiosity or to meet things with something else. You know, and I think that the more uh, more curiosity you can muster about those things, um, you know, the better, the better, because. Because, because lots of people are doing wonderful stuff, and there's lots of interesting things going on, and you know, it's uh, like you say, even even the the earliest known deck is not necessarily the original deck, and you know, so like let's put aside the notion that there's one true anything as such in tarot, and just a sort of lin- you know trees and branches and and things of flowing and ev- evolving and changing, you know. Yeah, well, that's it. That's really to the point because also we don't know. You know, it depends how you want to define things. Like, see, because we're looking at history, we're defining what what it is you know, from our yeah. perspective. And and you, and if you went back there, it wouldn't be the same. You know, like people in the Middle Ages didn't think they were in the middle of anything. And uh, yeah. you know, 
Yeah. And everybody's yeah. always thought it might be the end of days, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and, and like, uh, you know, like, I remember we had this discussion about Neoplatonism one time uh, online, and somebody was saying, well, so and so's a Neoplatonist, and so and so's a Neoplatonist, and this person's not a Neoplatonist, and, and they're, you know, and they're acting like as if people in the Renaissance were using the term, so we should know if they were Neoplatonists because they'd say so. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, the term didn't exist in the Renaissance. Yeah. <laughs> The, like Neoplatonists are mystic, you know, pla- are not regular Platonists. They're supposedly, they're Platonists that have more of a mystical bent and combine other things with Platonism. So that this term was invented in the 1800s by German uh, historians and philosophers to try and sort out, separate Plato from all these later Platonists. But the thing is, those people just all they didn't think there was different. They thought they were all Platonists. Sure. So well, they, they were in their way, yeah, right? They were. Yeah. So you know, and and we did, and these. You know, we're just going with this modern idea that, oh, no, they, we should separate these things. When that's, you know, I, like, I don't think we should. You know, it's like it seems like it's all part of the same continuum of philosophy, of Western philosophy. So, you know, it, it, it's just convenient little boxes we put things in, and then the boxes shift and change. It's, it's sort of like a diagnosis, you know, how, like, psychologists used to think that homosexuality was a mental illness. Yeah. <laughs> and then they said, oh, no, actually it isn't. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think that, uh, yeah, being more, being more understanding is definitely the way to go when it comes to approaching tarot and stuff. And, you know, and, and you also, you never know where you're going to end up, right? Like, I mean, you, you know, you've been, you've been interested in, in cards longer than I have for sure. But, you know, like I look, so I started with the mythic tarot, which was the only tarot deck that I could find. And, uh, you know, so I was like, I was at the mall with my grandmother and it had just come out and I was like, we buy this for me, and she was being awesome. She was like, "Absolutely, right?" And so yeah. I started reading that and working with that. But I was already reading Crowley at the time, and so what I really wanted was Toth deck. And then I got into the Toth deck for a long time, to the complete exclusion of anything else. Once I finally got my hands on it, and then, and then you know, because I, I do a lot of readings with people, and and my my spirit guide kind of like one of my guides was like you know you should really get a Marseille deck and I was like no it's not the tough deck you know and so I like have this like inner dialogue between that that inner inner guide and and my practice I'm like all right I'll, I'll get a Marseille deck and and now all I do is read with the Marseille deck you know oh, I, you, I, do you use the whole deck uh it depends on the context in which I'm reading um uh often often I use the majors only um, yeah. especially depending on the nature of the question and how long the reading's going to be and stuff like that. Um, I'm a big fan of if I, if the situation is complicated and I have, and I have a chunk of time with the person, um, then I'll use the technique that I picked up from, uh, Yoav's book, uh, open reading where you, uh, use the full deck, but you deal until you have a trump. So you uh-huh. end up with three stacks of cards with a trump on top of each one. And then it go through and read the trumps, and then uh, I pull out the cards from underneath each stack, and then continue the conversation from there to sort of clarify and stuff like that. So that's kind of one of my one of my preferred techniques these days. Um, but yeah, but it depends. Mostly, I mean, for myself, and when I'm just out and around, I just I have a set of trumps in my bag, and I would just work with those because mm-hmm. you can get whatever you need from them. Um, yeah, it, it's it, it shifts a little bit in the context though. Yeah, so. Yav was at my. He came to my lecture at the uh, Metropolitan Museum, you know, because I do it right before the uh, Reader Studio. Yeah, 
and uh, and then afterwards he gave me a copy of his deck and his book. So mm-hmm. you know, I, was, I did read read parts of it. It's mm-hmm. really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I I, uh, I I really I really enjoy his approach and and his deck and so on. Mostly, I work with the with the noble. Mm-hmm. With the with the noble, I have um, noble. What's that? The Jean Noble. Yeah, the Jean Noble. Yeah, um, yeah. and I have I have uh, an edition that actually uh, Joseph Peterson just released, uh, which is a photo reproduction of the um, of a museum from France of, of their collection. The collect- National Library in Paris. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, that's that that has become my my default favorite one. So I like the uh, I like the the rusticness and the organicness of the. Yeah, old old process. Really, yeah, just, just really intriguing artistically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know there was, there was this great show at the uh, Cloisters Museum in New York, which is part of the Metropolitan of, of cards. Just recently, we went. You know, there was a lot of cards on loan from Europe, mm-hmm. and you, when you look at a lot of old cards, you know the thing is this: the coloring so beautiful, and sometimes it's not. It's like part of the reason the coloring so beautiful is because the the paper ages. Yeah. And it sort of yellows, you know, like it, it becomes like this. It's not white. It's like this, you know, beige or something. Mm-hmm. And, and the and then you know you'll see like there's transparent colors over that that were probably you know the page the paper was never like you know bright white, mm-hmm. but the thing is they sort of got a more rich like the colors have got a richness to them that comes from the paper aging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and you can see it in the. Um... In the Flournoy um, hand stenciled yeah. Dodal, where yeah. it has this um, luminousness to it, because yeah. the because the colors are not opaque, yeah, um, but the lines are, and then there, there, it creates this depth and this this yeah texture to it, which is just delightful. Yeah, yeah. So, so. I'm trying to work with that in my artwork a little bit. You know, like uh, like one of the things I did. Uh, with the Marzianos, I I made the the background sort of more of that off white color instead mm-hmm. of white. Yeah, more like an antique paper because you know if you're doing modern printing and you know it's like they're not going to print it on antique paper for you. <laughs> well, they will. You just won't be able to sell it for anything that make you know. Yeah, right. It costs too much money. So. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, are you creating a deck? Uh, I am. I I am. I actually have. So I did. I did one deck already, which uh, I, I did this deck called uh, Terror Waiting to Happen. And uh, I, I was asking myself the question, what what was the emperor doing before he went and sat on the throne? You know, what was what led to the scenes which we're accustomed to seeing? And uh, before that scene? Yeah, exactly. And so, um, yeah, so I did uh, I did a series of majors of that um, sort of in the Marseille style, but just black and white. And then. Right now, I have I have a lot of projects on the go. I'm working on. Uh, I hopefully will be resolved as soon. Soon, uh, a group project, project so 70, 78, 78 artists total, total called the Triumph of Life deck, and it's a uh, it's a collaborative deck to raise money for cancer research. Um, so that should be out shortly. Um, I have an Oracle deck that I'm working on. I have I'm I'm playing around with doing a, a Marseille style deck. Um, I'm playing around with, with, uh, playing cards, just like making a set of playing cards. Yeah. Um, (laughs) and, uh, yeah. And then I have, and I have like, I also have, 
yeah. I have like six decks that I'm working on right now. So it's, it's kind of <laughs> well, one of those things, you know, you pick well, them up and put them down. Like you actually, you're doing pen and ink, you know, gouache. I mean, what, how you, what are you using? Uh, so most of what I do these days is uh, digital. So I draw on my iPad. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. I use, uh, yeah, I use this program called Procreate. Have you ever tried it? No. What may, mostly, I just use my big, uh, you know, desktop, and I work in Photoshop. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I do a lot of that because I, you know, I have I have little kids, so I can't leave my gouache out. You know, it'll be it'll, it'll be destroyed fast. You know, and I can and I can rarely find you know find enough time to sit down with the gouache because I feel like if I don't have like three hours, I'm wasting my time. You know, it takes me so yeah. long to sort of settle into it and you know yeah. get my feel and flow and stuff. But um, but I do have uh, I've been working uh, slowly on this um, sort of Gnostic mythology inspired uh, tarot deck, and yeah. that one I've been painting in gouache when I have the time. So. You know, yeah. sort of different, different sort of Gnostic characters as as the, um, you know, as the as the people. So, like the one of the first ones is uh, the fool is uh, is you know Adam leaving the Garden of Eden, right, stepping out yeah. into the world and stuff like that. And you know, there'll be other characters and, and sort of. That's actually in my things. angels to row. That's I had Adam was the fool. The uh-huh. same. Yeah, my my working title for it is uh, Adam Cadman goes for a walk. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, obviously not the actual card title, but yeah, fun. Yeah. So, so what? Okay, so so how are you? So what, you're using this program and you're drawing on your tablet. Yeah, and then how are you coloring it? Coloring on the tablet. So yeah, okay. Does it have like you have like a paint bucket and stuff like that? It's um, airbrush. So what are... everything. Pro- Procreate yeah. so is it's a, a lot like Photoshop. Yeah, um, yeah, a lot like Photoshop. Um, it's it's got layers. It's got you can do transparencies and stuff like that. You can then you, yeah, in your set. If you have layers and transparencies, then you know yeah, and um, and then it's it's just got a it's got um, unlike Photoshop. Well, I mean, you could kind of do this in Photoshop, but it would take a lot of setup. But this is designed for this, right? Because it's a professional illustration software. It yeah. has. I don't know, 150 different kinds of brushes. Yeah. You know, and like if you want to go and use the like turpentine oil wash, it will smudge stuff around it like those things. And like there's so many like textures and layers and effects yeah. and stuff that you can just get into. And yeah, I've been I've been doing a lot of that for the last the last few years now. And then, um, yeah, so I really like I've really sort of settled into it. The other thing that I've been doing is um, I've been doing, uh, I call them impossible readings. And so if someone asks me a question that is essentially more philosophical or really unanswerable in some way, right? So like on the website for it, one of the examples that is there is uh, somebody asked me, I feel like I have forgotten something at a soul level. What is it? And I'm like, that's a great question. I love that question. I don't know how to answer that question, but I love the question. And um, what I do is I, I then draw a card and um, like from a deck, draw a card is the answer. And then I start um, and I import it into the program and start embellishing it. Mm-hmm. And as I'm doing it, I record the whole process so that I create a video for it. Mm-hmm. And then I set that video to music or add words or do other things. So it becomes this like multi-level sort of uh, video performance piece. Mm-hmm. Where where it sort of uh, you know 
it's like drawing somebody into a dream as opposed to trying to answer a question with statements and words. And uh, people have been really enjoying that as well. I don't know. Yeah, uh, it's it's not quite tarot, but it's not not tarot either, you know? So. Yeah. Well, yeah, it sounds like the Tarot Museum in Italy would love something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, they're really into performance. Like, you know, when I was there, they had this whole, like, uh, performance troupe that acted out the trumps. And, you know, uh-huh. They did all kinds of things. I mean, they have these people that they may, and then they take still photographs of them, you know, doing these absurd things like, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's sort of like Monty Python meets the Trumps, you know. <laughs> excellent, excellent. <laughs> Salvador Dali or whatever, right? You know? Yeah, I mean, well, they're not, you know, the thing is, when I, I taught at the, at the uh, museum, I taught them divination. Most of those people don't do divination with the cards. They, right. they just look at his artwork. Mm-hmm. So that was a big deal. They said, oh, wow, somebody from America has shown us how to actually use these cards for divination. Yeah. <laughs> and they have a whole museum about them, you know. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's fascinating, right? I mean, that's the that's the, that's the the great thing about, uh, you know, about you and what you're doing, right? Historian and diviner and artists all rolled into one, right? You know, like yeah, often. Yeah. yeah, I mean, well, like. like, like I, you know, like I, I always tell people that if it wasn't for a tailor. I, I, you know, setting setting the groundwork. I probably couldn't do all this, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, like you look at, uh, you know, Pamela Coleman Smith, right? Not yeah. a not a tarot reader, right? You know, yeah. uh, Lady Frida Harris, you know, with with Crowley, not a tarot reader, right? Like, yeah. you know, I mean, lots of lot, there, there's a long history of of that not being the case. But I think that where it is the case is is always extra interesting to me. You know, not well, what, the, the other well, model that's doesn't work. The museum, like they, ha- they basically have artists from all over Italy have made tarot images. You know, but the, n- none of those people are readers. Mm-hmm. They're just—it's just an—it's an art form, which is basically what it's. I mean, that's what it started. I mean, it was created by artists in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's not—it's uh, not untrue to tradition. It's just not what, what we would expect based on our Western yeah, engagement right. with tarot, right? Right. Yeah. Also, you know, there's people in Italy that actually still play the card game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's not like they're not divorced from the history of it because they're still in it. <laughs> yeah. 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 For sure. That's awesome. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time and, and having this conversation with me. I really, really have enjoyed it. And um, yeah. You yeah, got to talk shop a little bit, huh? Yeah, well, it's great, right? You know, it's it's fun to get to talk to artists and talk to people about these things because, you know, it's uh, it's one of the great upsides of going to reader studio or conferences is getting to meet people and having like, you know, nerding out a little bit about this stuff. Um, but it's not always easy to get there. And, you know, it's it's certainly, you know, not, not part of most people's or even really my regular life to, to get to hang out that much with, with people who are you know, not coming to me for readings, right? So, yeah, so it's really enjoyable. Um, where's your stuff? Where's, where's, where should people come find you? What's, uh, uh, well, they should go to my website. Okay. Which is robertmplacetarot.com. Perfect. Yeah, check it out. Go get his decks. Go look at what's going on. You know, and, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's well, fascinating. Also, they can fr- friend me on Facebook. Yeah, Perfect. I will uh, I will include the uh, the the links uh, in the show notes as well. Okay, great. Thank you so much for listening and for your ongoing support of the podcast. We are just cruising past episode fifty, and very shortly I'm going to have a uh, special celebratory episode 
where Kerry Paris is going to come and interview me, which I am very excited about. I also want to share that my book, A Tarot of You, is out. It is up on Amazon. It is available on Kindle. Uh, and it is available through the Hermit's Lamp, both at the store and through our website. It has been receiving wonderful reviews and feedback. And if you want to check it out, head on over to my website, thehermitslamp.com, and just click the banner for it on the front page. Uh, or go to thehermitslamp.com slash a tarot of you, all spelled together, and check it out. Let me know what you think, and uh, I hope that it will excite you and inspire you. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.